Mid-market-sized businesses are where the true economic action in business really is. They are nimble and agile. They're factories of growth, they lead in innovation, and they're early adopters of tech. These enterprises need the right tools, support and environment to flourish. But sadly, they're often overlooked and undervalued. Not here though. This is the Mid-Market Matters podcast, and I'm your host, Craig West. We'll explore pain points, growth strategies, and how to find the competitive edge. Welcome to SME Radio. I'm joined by Peter Baines, who has a really interesting and long-term history. Back 25 years ago when I met him, he was a forensic services policeman up in Tamworth in New South Wales. And let me tell you, he's nowhere near that now. It's quite a different story. Pete, thanks for joining us. Uh, My pleasure. Great to uh, connect again. Let me start with a bit of history and background. How did you get where you are today from, you know, starting out in the New South Wales Police right to where you are? Give us a bit of background. Oh, it's a very clear natural progression, wouldn't you think? (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, probably not. So I uh, joined the cops uh, not long out of school and uh, went into uniform and then, you know, to be honest, got sick of dealing with domestics and drunks and saw an opportunity in the forensic services group. Learned my trade as a crime scene investigator. So I was investigating scenes of homicide and suspicious deaths and so forth and and uh, had 10 years in the bush in Tamworth, which was um, a wonderful place to be. And we had our three kids up there and then an opportunity presented to move back to Sydney through promotion and move back to Sydney as a detective inspector looking after half of uh, Sydney in the forensic area. Then there was the uh, bombings in Bali in 2002, and that was really a turning point, I guess. I uh, deployed over there and uh, was leading uh, the teams in the identification of those who died. And and uh, shortly uh, thereafter, it certainly, like, it certainly felt like a short time thereafter, I was then into uh, Thailand following the Boxing Day tsunami where there was somewhere between uh, 250 and 300,000 people that died as a result of that. And in Thailand, we recovered 5,395 people. And I spent uh, most of 2005 either deployed into Thailand or uh, getting ready to go back and uh, leading the international teams and the Australian team in the identification of the bodies. And that was 2005. I came back and and, uh, was then offered a a secondment to work for Interpol in Lyon in France uh, on a counter-terrorism project focusing on uh, chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear threats and did that for for 12 months and then my secondment was extended when I worked for, um, I got invited to spend some time with the United Nations uh, Office of Drug and Crime in Southeast Asia, and uh, and that was uh, took me through to the end of uh, 2008. Then I resigned from the police. Then uh, started. I did some work um, on on contract with the uh, in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in the city of Jeddah, leading some crisis mitigation and and so forth. And worked in Japan after the tsunami over there, and that kind of rounded out the work I'd done in that space. But I guess. Things really got interesting in 2005 at the end of Thailand when I met a group of kids who'd all lost their their homes and parents and they were living in a tent and 
and uh, made a decision without putting a lot of thought into it. And uh, as you know me, that's the way I've lived my life and uh, formed a charity called Hands Across the Water. And uh, and that's taken me to where I am today, supporting these kids. And, and it's just grown and grown and grown. That is an incredible story. It seems like you've lived 150 years of career in 20. But I wouldn't mind just going back a little bit to some of the lessons out of Bali and Thailand because, I, you know, I'm, I don't know if you remember, I suppose you do, we were down the south coast when you got called away to go to Bali on a holiday, relaxing in the sun. Next minute, I think the, the news, we sort of sat around with a beer probably watching the news and seeing this horrendous event evolving and going, oh, my God, Pete's, you know, likely to get called up, the phone rings, off you go. Um, yep. What did you learn from that? I mean, that's a dramatic event to be involved in it's not a small your background i guess forensics was car accidents and murder investigations and that sort of stuff which is one or two people hopefully not too many suddenly you're in thousands yeah look it was something that uh, none of us uh, could have prepared for and and i think in the training that we had done um it, we did desktop and scenario type training and if you ever had sat down with a group and said okay, we're going to do a disaster exercise and there'll be 200. Uh, yeah. You'd think, well, that really stretches it. If you sat there and said, you know, well, we're going to have 5,000, the exercise wouldn't have been taken seriously. You know, I flew into um, a Wat Yanyao, a temple in Takuapa, uh, north of Kaolak, and uh, there was uh, three and a half thousand decomposing bodies in that one temple. You know, I was sitting there with a one of Australia's leading pathologists, and uh, he, he said, all we can do here is a token effort. But what we did over 12 months with 450 staff from across the world was identified, you know, all but uh, 450 of those uh, of those bodies. And, and I think that uh, one of the things that really became clear is that um, uh, certainly taking action uh, will lead to clarity. Uh, the more you do, the clearer things will become. And and what presented before us was something that was uh, a word that we are hearing so much now is unprecedented. And yep. uh, but you know the lessons and the policies and procedures and and actions of leaders, we don't have to start again. We don't have to reinvent all of this stuff. And crisis is really the critical testing ground for leadership. You know, it's where that we strip away a lot of the the comforts that we have in normal business. And what we see is true leaders are identified by their actions and their reactions. It's not about the positions people hold, it's what they do. These are some of the things that became so clear to me. Absolutely, it was a fertile ground for for, lead, uh, for learning for all of us involved. So how are you translating that across to business owners now? Obviously, we don't want business owners to go through that kind of dramatic crisis, but they can still learn a lot from it. How are yeah. you translating that across to teach people? Yeah, well, up until uh, October last year with the bushfires, we didn't we didn't think that our businesses and many of your clients would see a crisis and disaster on that kind of scale, but plenty are right now. You know, the bushfires took us through a season which, again, w w was something that we hadn't seen on that s uh, scale. And, and then with COVID, you know, creeping up on us and then uh, shutting down business, I think a lot of us have have been faced with crisis that in our lives we've never experienced before. And, you know, there's some good lessons that we've taken from times of crisis and disaster and how we get through it. And part of it is having that real clear clarity of purpose as to why we do what we do as a business, as an organisation, 
and as an individual because that helps us you know make informed decisions and I think one of the early things that and remains important is when we're communicating with our with our teams our staff our family is if you give information you get understanding one of the things that's been so difficult for people to comprehend is the lack of information the lack of clarity and that was a real clear lesson for me uh, out of Bali because in Bali after the bombings there are a lot of victims and families who stayed behind and said we're not going until we've got our loved ones back and uh, you know their presence there wasn't going to to make it any better wasn't going mm-hmm. to expedite the identification process and the pressure that came upon us was something that we hadn't experienced before where you had pressure from the media from the government from the families from the relatives from senior police themselves who were all didn't understand the nature of the forensic identification process why it took the time it did and what was the expectation and people were giving us maybe a couple of weeks grace to identify their loved ones to have this wrapped up it took months and when you understand the complexity and the need then you you understand why so what we did was we got the families together at the Kartika Plaza Hotel in Bali and we actually ran an education exercise for them in the principles of disaster victim identification so they walked out of the hotel that day with understanding and with information and from that we got their understanding now we didn't we didn't mend their hearts we didn't return their loved ones we didn't stop the hurt but what they understood um was by us giving them the information and take, taking them through that process they then said they understood why it was going to take the time it did and we're in a much better position so when we're talking to our teams and our families now one is we don't have all the answers uh, but when we're we're truthful about the position we're in give them the information then we empower people to make their own informed opinions and i think the final thing about all of that was the importance of presence it was it was really clear to me working in in uh, japan in 2011 after the tsunami there and and i worked with a man by the name of mr sato-san in the owati prefecture and uh, and his presence within the community it said that he cared and he understood the challenges and i think we look at the performance of our uh, government leaders uh, in the last 6 months and uh, um when david elliot the minister for uh, for police in new south wales uh, flew out to france for a holiday in the midst of uh, the biggest crisis facing this state um it, it, it showed how out of touch he was when our prime minister went to hawaii for a yeah. holiday uh, during the bushfires it showed uh, how out of touch he was and and as leaders we don't have to have all the answers we don't even have to bring about change but there's an expectation we will be present and for those of us that are in leadership positions um when you're present with your family your business your community whoever it is you're leading it says you care and you understand and in these times where we can't physically be present well that brings an extra um uh, challenge for us as how to do that but we know that there's so much technology that allows us to be present and and that's what people want They don't expect us to have all the answers. They just expect 
their leaders to care and be present. We were actually talking to Daniel Murray the other day, who I know you know well, around empathic leadership, and his message is very similar. You know, it's about presence, showing that you care and just communicating far more than you think you should. We can look at, you know, history uh, over the last 20 years is, is filled with leaders who have done it well, like Giuliani after 9-11 um, was at ground zero before the towers came down. And, and he's the face of leadership of 9-11. You know, look at George Bush after Hurricane Katrina. He was so heavily criticised for his lack of presence. We've got Anna Bly after the 2011 floods and cyclone, the Premier of Queensland, you know, her political ratings, she enjoyed the highest ratings because of her presence. We've got Christine Nixon after the Victorian bushfires. She's crucified because the day a lot of people died, she was out getting a haircut. We don't expect our leaders to solve all the problems. There was no expectation that uh, uh, the PM would put out the bushfires. But there was an expectation he wouldn't be off in Hawaii. You know, Having a holiday. And look at Donald Trump at the moment. I mean, that's been an interesting <laughs> crisis in leadership, one way to describe it. Only for the past four years. It's a really interesting history of learning around crisis and disaster. But, you know, in times when we're not in crisis and disaster, what learnings would you apply then? I mean, we're in one at the moment, but go back six months before the bushfires. Yeah. What lessons are you applying to, to life as in some kind of normality. So many of these uh, lessons that I talk about and share and work with business on, um, it, they're designed for uh, normal operating uh, times. Because if I'm only focused on crisis, well, then I've got a limited lifespan, haven't I? You know, yeah. as, a, as someone trying to make a dollar. The point that I made at the beginning is that uh, crisis is just a critical testing ground for leadership. Your listeners who are running a business, whether it be uh, on their own, whether it be with half a dozen people or whether they've got, uh, you know, a team of, of 500 people, we're fundamentally facing the same challenges in dealing with people. You know, it's talking about when there's opportunities, when acting with speed, because if we wait until we've got all of the answers uh, to all the possible questions, we'll miss opportunities. You know, it's about having courage in leadership. It's about making decisions without deliberation. It's about leading with sensitivity because when we bring about change, we know that uh, people are going to be upset by it. How do we do all of these things that I've taken from crisis and we say, you know what, in, in crisis, uh, uh, some of it's about uh, um, making shortcuts. And in business, we overcomplicate things. We employ teams and teams and teams of people to put in place policies and procedures and overcomplicate the shit out of what we're doing. But in, in times of crisis, we're able to strip away so many of those layers. And we go, well, if we can do it then, why do we need to have all of this in place? What we want to do is pass on the decision-making. We don't want to be responsible for something. Yeah. We just keep pushing it up the, up the chain so someone else can ultimately be accountable for this. You know, we form steering committees and working groups and focus groups all to make decisions because sometimes our leaders just lack the courage of backing themselves and making a decision. Thailand significantly changed your life. You know, as I said, I was with you when you got called over there, you realised you had to go over. No one knew how long it was going to take or what the, what it actually looked like. But I want to talk a little bit about th that journey and where you ended up with HANDS, because that's, that's a significant part of your life now. Tell yeah. us about the start of HANDS and where it's evolved to now. Yeah, thanks. It's, um, you know, it started, I guess, as you said, um, you know, that day of being at Sussex Inlet, standing around with the families, um, watching the news and uh, 
um, seeing the, the, the size of it for the first time, um, that night I knew that I'd go to Thailand. It was just a matter of how quickly. And, and as you know, there was a phone call and then next thing I was on a plane to Thailand. And, and I guess the commitment that was made that day um, in some form um, continues right through to today. And, and meeting the kids who'd all lost their families, uh, what came to me was that I couldn't change what had happened, but I realised I could change what happened next. Mm. And it wasn't in my power to bring their families back or anything like that, but it was within my power to do something around what happened next for them. So I, I started the charity Hands Across the Water and the view was to build a home. And, and I thought that once that home was built, job was done. I was incredibly naive in that thinking and uh, probably thankfully so because if I'd known all of what was ahead, maybe it wouldn't be something that I'd taken on. It was really when I returned for the opening of that first home that uh, then I thought, well, then what happens now? Who supports the kids? Who provides the funding for their education, their health care? Who employs the staff? And then formed a structure, formed a legal entity and uh, went about the you know, creating a, a proper system for this. And uh, I spoke at conferences and told stories and got paid and used that money to, to fund the operation of the charity. And and now uh, it's 15 years this year that we've been uh, wow. in operation since with hands and raised over $25 million and uh, never spent a cent of it on administration or fundraising. And and, and that's because of the structure we put in place. And I learned pretty early, there's 60,000 char charities in Australia. And uh, I'd suggest to you that most of them are doing a bloody good job and most of them deserve to be funded. But Hands was never going to be able to compete uh, for uh, the dollar just relying upon uh, sympathy and compassion. Because in the big scheme of things, um, it's not within um, the remit or the vision of a lot of people to support these, this group of kids in Thailand, particularly once the news of the tsunami has gone. So I realised we had to do something different and uh, HANDS became um, a model where we set about providing value first and foremost to those that we're partnering with. So if you want to support us, what we want to do is make sure that you as a donor, as a, an individual, a family or a business is taking more from this interaction than you're giving. Because then we know that people will come back. We have seven homes across uh, Thailand. We have 350 kids in residential care. We have an outreach program. We have a growing alumni of those that we've supported through university. We have 47 kids currently at university. Right now, we're in the final stages of building a, a, a learning centre with a focus on digital technology, digital education and pathways directly into new employment not just for the kids, but for a community uh, in Yossaton, a rural community where we've secured commercial um, uh, contracts to provide these digital services um, where these kids previously had no opportunities at that type of level. Just before COVID, we were um, uh, along the way of building a, a hospitality training centre to provide training for the community. And we'd just been gifted by the, the government a school that's uh, no longer used. You know, we do a lot about the education for the kids. We do a lot about job readiness for the kids, but there's a thing that's missing and it's sport. And, uh, you know, you, with your two boys, uh, how their life has been shaped through sport and yep. continues. 
And I go, well, that's what's missing for these kids in Thailand. So they're going to build a sports academy. And all of that's been put on hold now because of COVID. That's the change that's come about. It's been a remarkable journey along the way, but many lessons have come out of that for us around the need to do something different. And part of the thinking now, and this is what happens when charities don't have their model right, a lot of people and business support charity, but it's, uh, it's, it's not corporate social responsibility. It's, it's philanthropy. And people think that they've got corporate social responsibility. And you don't have to be a corporate to have this. But, uh, but what it is, is it's a discretionary spend. And when times get hard, businesses and families and individuals look at their discretionary spend and say, well, they're the first to go. So for yeah. a lot of business, the first to go is the support of charity. But if we, if we can turn their support of charity into a profit centre, then, well, the CFO, the, those in the business side of, of the organisation say, well, let's not get rid of that too quickly because that's helping us. So when you do that kind of thing right uh, as a business, then you're getting uh, staff retention, staff attraction, uh, new brands, new markets, uh, brand differentiation, customer loyalty, all of these positive things. And, and I guess that's the journey of hands is that we've tried and I think we've been successful in retaining and attracting businesses and uh, and individuals because we provide value back. We see ourselves as a service provider first and foremost rather than someone just soliciting donations. So tell me about the bike rides. I'm interested. When I knew you back in 2005, you weren't some middle-aged guy running around in Lycra. Now you do a lot of that. And tell yeah. me a bit about the bike rides and how they've worked for hands, but also for the clients that participate. Yeah, look, they, uh, our first one in 2009, we had 17 people and uh, Bridget Gibson, who was uh, with Combank at the time and heard me speak at a conference. And it's actually, uh, you spoke about Dan Murray. Well, he was at the same conference. He rode with us along with Bridge in 2009. Uh, they were both with Combank and, uh, and both had their first exposure. And we rode from Bangkok to Kalak, a distance of 800 kilometres over eight days, raised 10 grand to be there and paid for our expenses on top. And, and it was really not long after the first one, I went, well, that's all right. Perhaps we should do it again. And this year we were down to do six rides and 250 people. And, wow. and the success again comes because of what people get out of it. And people think that they're coming uh, to do this for the kids in Thailand. Uh, but very quickly they realize it's actually about themselves. And I think if I can give an example of a, a group called Digital Live that's um, within the real estate industry, mm-hmm. and and they're not, it's not a brand, it's an organisation that's run by Steve Carroll, who's the founder of Digital Live, and and I spoke at a conference for them, and Steve said, uh, I think I want to have three or four people come and do your ride. I said, yeah, okay. And then a couple of weeks later, he said, I think I can get enough people to do my own ride. So last year, they had 24 people from the real estate industry across the board come and do the ride. And and uh, day two of the ride, um, before they'd seen the homes, before they'd met the kids, before they had any interaction of this five-day, 500-kilometre ride they were doing, he said, I want to do two rides next year. Now, the reason for that was because of what he saw or occurring within the business community of riders. Now, there's a business guy, a supplier to the real estate industry called Deercrit. They came on the ride and uh, they had about 30% market share of those riders. Um, Within two weeks after the ride, 
they had 100% market share of those riders. So do you reckon they didn't come back again this year? So there was eight people that came back. It's the best business that they can do. You know, it's because of the, the relationships that are formed and the, the adversity, the challenge, the celebration, all that occurs. And, you know, for many of us um, of middle age or so forth these days, it's, it's something that's lacking in our life. Where am I really challenged? Where do I go to these depths and then have, you know, this real celebration as well? And so for us, this is an example of rider rides just continue to grow year on year in numbers. And, and as I say, it's not about just uh, asking people to give money. We're providing experiences. We have a, have a return rate of 76% uh, of people come back and ride again, you know, and that's a, that's a clear indication of the success. And, you know, right now, COVID's uh, made it challenging uh, yeah. for us to get on bikes and get to Thailand. But, you know, we put in place this uh, virtual ride to provide, and it starts in, uh, uh, it's the month of June, where people get to ride 800 kilometres with us over the month of June. There's plenty of virtual experiences out there right now, but I'd suggest there's two differences in ours. You can do your 800 kilometres in a Zoom room with us at 7am or midday where you do a 45-minute spin class. But what the difference is, is you actually, you have the footage, we're having it recorded as we speak today. Uh, there's a crew who are recording the footage. So what your screen will be, you'll be riding, you'll be looking at the roads that we ride down Thailand. You'll be looking at the peach, uh, beaches and the temples and the second aspect to it is that we've got 20 to 30 minute interviews with these amazing people who are joining us. People like uh, Kurt Fernley, uh, Danny Green, uh, Sam Gash, some amazing people that you would know, but equally a number of many that you had never heard of before. Uh, yep. I just spoke with uh, Ryan O'Keefe, uh, who was a 300 gamer. Uh, Sydney Swans is uh, coming on board to have a, a chat with us. Uh, Whipper from uh, Nova's joining us. We've got all these people, and then we've got people who um, you never would have heard of done amazing things. So during the the Zoom, during these uh, spin sessions, we'll have interviews with these incredible people. So, so that's what, one of the things that we're doing to try to uh, fill the gap that's been created for us by COVID. So, mate, before we wrap up, and I'll get some contact details in a minute, so people can find out how they get onto that virtual ride if they're interested and in being involved. Your number one tip for business owners dealing with crisis at the moment, what's the number one tip? Know that it's going to change. You know, I have this four-stage model called the crisis clock, and uh, the first stage is uh, divide anything up in the, in the quarters. And all this is is project management without the planning, you know, and that's what crisis is for us. And the first quarter, um, you turn up and it's all frantic. And we saw that with the irrational buying of dunny paper, you know, yeah. like they yeah. never understand the correlation between getting, you know, COVID and, and needing more dunny paper. But, you know, we went into this frantic stage of how are we going to work from home? How are we going to live? What's all that like? The second stage is when it's controlled, when we understand we've got our system set up, we're working from home, our family's functioning. And we're at our most productive in this second quarter. The third quarter, which is, I think, is where we are right now, is when people have lost tolerance, they're impatient, they're sick of being home, they're stretching the boundaries, they're pushing the boundaries, they're tired. For us, when we look at this four-quarter stage in Thailand, this is when we're missing our families, missing home, sick of dealing with bodies, sick of living in the same hotel, sick of getting up at the same time. But what we've got to know is this time will pass. And we'll come into this fourth quarter where we either have 
Uh, we need to develop continuity plans or exit strategies. How do we get out? What's it look like? And, and as leaders and families and everyone, if we know we're in that third quarter now and we will come out of this and there will be the exit, um, and that's what I'd focus on right now, just knowing change will come and be prepared to deal with that as well. Fantastic, mate. So how do people get in touch with you and or hands um, if they want to get involved and if they seriously want to get involved, get on that virtual ride in June? Yeah, absolutely. The the ride, it costs $49 uh, to be part of, so $1.16 a day. So uh, I, I reckon with the work that you, you, you do, you could help someone set up a financial plan and meet that onerous task of paying a day. <laughs> We're asking them to raise 500 bucks over the month, which is, again, $16 a day. Uh, and if we've got 30 people uh, that can donate 16 bucks, you know, it brings about real change for us. So for that, all things hands, head to handsacrossthewater.org.au. Uh, anything uh, uh, related to my stuff, just peterbaines.com.au. And one of the things we are doing right now is, is we're helping uh, small business and charities uh, look at how we can do we through this business I, I run called doing good rewards we we do these develop these uh, uh, corporate social responsibility programs but to help charities right now and their business partners we're offering a free audit which is a month-long audit where we look at the business we look at the, how their public facing um, presence around CSR and so forth because a lot of businesses I'll talk to they'll go oh this is what we're doing I'll go but when we look at it as consumers because one of the things I think is going to change when we come out of what we've been in is there'll be a di different uh, consciousness in consumers they'll be looking to support yeah. businesses and people and organizations that are doing well and looking after others if you're doing that but you're not reporting measuring it correctly well you might as well not be doing it yeah. And uh, if you want business growth, this will be a different differentiator. So if someone wants to be involved in that, wants to learn more about that, just shoot me uh, an email, peter at peterbaines.com.au, and I can help them with that stuff as well. Fantastic, mate. Thanks for joining us. It's been really good. Pleasure. Always, always uh, good to have a chat. Thank you for listening to SME Radio, proudly produced by Eagle Wave's small business podcasting platform. For more great episodes like this, go to smea.org.au. Remember, if you have a story to tell, we want to share it. Yeah.